Hello, you are about to listen to another episode of Beyond Clean, a podcast where we talk about everything that is healthy, positive, and proactive. I am your host, Dave Thompson. Yes, we are in Season 4. We broadcast out of Orlando, Florida. This is where the cleaning industry talks about everything that is healthy, positive, and proactive. We would love to have you on the show, so reach out to me, D. Thompson at academyofcleaning.com or at 888-999-6059. Be sure to listen to our live streaming that we will be doing this year on Podbean. Now, for today's show, let's get started. Good afternoon, folks. This is Dave Thompson. I am your host this afternoon, the Director of Education here at the Academy of Cleaning Excellence. And hey, you know what we do. We have a podcast. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we haven't been on the podcast on a regular basis, you know, like our normal one o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time. Well, and that's because we've been teaching our accredited infection prevention expert class You know, during this pandemic, everybody wants to learn why they should be doing, what they should be doing, well, and maybe find out if they're doing it right or wrong or, you know, like I had a call just a little while ago from a gentleman. He said, my people are scared to death to go in the building. We had a COVID outbreak. He says, can you help, you know, you know, get rid of the fear that my people have? I said, that's what we're here for. Now, this afternoon, folks, uh, you are not going to listen to me talk all the time. Gee, that's probably a good thing, right? I don't know if you remember one of the podcasts we did with a a gentleman. His name was Graham Marsh. He talked real fast. He had a real heavy accent. So, hey, guys, I got a new thing for you. Dr. Greg is on the line here from guess what? Australia. Greg, are you there? Did it all work? (laughs) It's working fine. Thanks, Dave. And hello to all your listeners. And uh, it's uh, just uh, late fall here in uh, where I am in Sydney. And it's we're finding it really cold. It's It's got down to, you know, nearly 50 degrees and we're all freezing. 50 degrees. It's early fall. Now, folks, if you're listening to us either here live this afternoon on Podbean Live or if you're listening to the recorded version, It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday here in the East Coast, and it's morning for Greg on Wednesday. That's correct. That's right. I'm a day ahead of you. Well, not quite. Next So, you know, hey, you get to start your day talking with us. (laughs) I'm so, so thrilled to be with you and uh, honored to be taking part. So let's tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and why we are going to talk probably for the next hour about, well, hey, COVID and the cleaning industry. Sure, sure. Look, my, um, my family background is in the uh, Jansan sector. Our, our family has had a business operating in this sector, making uh, cleaning products and disinfectants and all sorts of other bits and pieces since 1933, since the uh, Great Depression. In fact, our, our business started in the Great Depression years because they couldn't get a hold of uh, cleaning products, and uh, there was a there was a need in the market. And we've been, my family's been involved uh, since the seventies in the business, so for fifty years or so. So we've got a long history, and we do lots and lots of research, lots and lots of findings. Uh, we we actually do uh, a small amount of business, particularly in the um, healthcare sector in the US. Um, but, yeah, we've got a long and deep history, Dave, so a uh, long time. Now, so if, I remember read, business. <clears throat> if I remember reading some of the information, Greg, uh, the your family business isn't the only thing that you have connected here. No. No, I, I'm afraid I'm one of those people who just gets bored very easily. So I originally started out doing a, 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 a qualification primarily with the goal of never working for my family's business. That, that didn't quite work out. So I became <laughs> a, an environmental health officer, which I enjoyed a lot, except it was working for local government. And sometimes, sometimes, well, look, big Frank, I got bored. So I went back to university and uh, did a master's degree in occupational health and safety. So that's keeping people safe at work. I then started a PhD. In fact, I almost 
converted over to a medical degree, but I started a PhD. Then I pulled out for a while and um, gave it a break while I had a family. I've got two adult children, uh, one a married son who lives not far away and uh, a daughter at university who has two dogs and she's about a 1,000 miles away, so that's probably about the right distance And uh, um, in terms of the two dogs and everybody together. <laughs> and then now, uh, now, I got bored right, is, again. Is that the right distance as far as she's concerned, Greg, or you are? <laughs> well, she's coming back on Friday, Dave, so we'll find out. <laughs> well, now, now, now that you mentioned that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question here. You know, um, here in the U.S., we're actually talking and, and wondering, are the universities, higher education, even lower education, K through 12, are we actually going to start school back in the fall? What's happening there? Oh, look, the, the, the university sectors uh, and the school sectors have been disrupted. Technically, the schools have remained open, but the reality, just with the timing of the uh, seasons, um, we've just gone past a, uh, a fall break. So all the young kids were at home and a lot of the university was just shut down. But they're talking about bringing schools back from next week, which is uh, 8th May, May 8th. And, uh, and the universities uh, probably will start again in, the, um, in what is our spring session, which starts in July, August. So they'll probably remain on remote learning. Most of them are doing their classes via Zoom or, or one of the other uh, modalities. Anyway, I, um, as part of my ongoing work too, the other thing I did was getting bored again after having brought up a couple of kids. Uh, my wife nearly killed me, but I went back and did a doctorate in basically how to measure cleaning in hospitals. And uh, so I did a PhD and I now have an adjunct uh, research role at the University of Western Sydney in the School of Medicine looking at superbugs and uh, how they move around and how we can kill them how we can measure cleaning as well in a way that's valid so that it's more than just an eyeball good look. And that turns out to be very relevant for COVID. Well, you know, that's interesting as you, as you say that, Greg, because one of the conversations that I have on a repeated basis is, you know, we're going to use this cleaner, we're going to use this tool, we're going to do this. And I said, so how do you know that you're having any effect or what your effect is? And it, oh. is, it is beyond me how I cannot get people to understand that if you do not measure the outcome, just using something and doing it isn't proving anything. Oh, dead right. Dead right. Look, cleaning, let me tell you a, a, tr a true story, Dave. I started my PhD um, project area, and we do it slightly differently in Australia where it's there's, there's almost no coursework for what I had to do for a doctorate. It's all research. So it was six years of research. And I started with the, the, the understanding that, you know, if all you're going to do is eyeball things and go in and have a bit of a look-see, you can't see these bacteria. You certainly can't see the viruses. You can't see anything. It's just whether it looks clean. Mm -hmm. And initially I had a negative view about that. I thought, oh, this is just rubbish. I mean, we spend... Hundreds of millions of dollars in a hospital, you know, on MRI machines and this machine and that machine and complex blood analysis and this bit here. It's quite extraordinary, the amount of technology. And yet the fundamental thing that we have to do to keep the buildings clean, we use, we use visual acuity. Uh, so you go looking for something you can't see. It's, it's actually crazy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was very negative about it. But then I also, as I went on and particularly as I came to the end, I realised um, that, in fact, uh, cleaning is a sensory experience. We actually are really good as humans at the sensory experience stuff. Um, you know, we can detect. For example, most people have never smelled a, a dead body, a dead human body, but anybody that smells a dead human body knows immediately what it is. Like people walking through the bush will find a, a, some, a, a decaying corpse. And they know immediately that, it's, that it's, it's, it's a dead body. Now, that's a, probably an evolutionary principle. We, we, we have this deeply ingrained process, an evolutionary process, to look for cleanliness, to, to keep things clean. And the nesting instinct for women who are about to have a baby is a classic 
primal example of that evolutionary process. And so, you know, and if you think about our senses, we can detect whether something's unclean in water if we taste it and it tastes soft. There you are. It's, there's cleanliness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't taste right. It doesn't smell right. You want to smell a bathroom. The number one reason still in America and in Australia that contract cleaners lose a contract is because they can't get rid of bathroom smells. It's a sensory issue. The bathroom might look clean, but it smells. Um, uh, then, then, of course, even hearing, if you've got grit on the floor and you walk across a floor and you hear the, you know, it's a, it's a sensory experience. Sometimes detergent residues, for example, on a linoleum floor, a lino floor, a vinyl floor, using more modern language, um, you can hear the stickiness of shoes. Well, that tells you it's not clean. And uh, that's the whole sensory experience. So I've realised whilst there are problems with the sensory experience, it is part of how humanity to actually uh, have that as a, a whole of context. But what I looked at particularly was how you measure stuff on surfaces scientifically. So would you like me to go there? Well, and that's where I'm going is, is yes, visually, <clears throat> and as you're saying, Greg, sensorily, I can detect, but everybody's detection seems to be askew to the realities of infection. And whenever we're talking about the pandemic that we have worldwide right now, and quite honestly, we fight every day in the cleaning business. uh, These infections are everywhere every day. They're invisible, as you said. We just have a heightened awareness of it right now. What I mean, I know what we use here at the Academy, what we talk about as best practice for identification in the field. There is a limitation and there is, I guess, levels, uh, if you will. So let me introduce some real technical jargon to everyone, Dave. Oh, oh, goodness. (laughs) You're going to get Graham on me again, aren't you? I'm going to give you a spelling test afterwards. How's that? Oh, okay. (laughs) Look, when we come to talk about our sensory experience of measuring cleaning, it's what's called qualitative. And that's a big piece of jargon. And basically what it means is it it, it gives you a feel for quality, but it's it's not something that you you can put into a measurement scale really. And if you do, it's sort of a bit arbitrary. So... I might walk into a, a mouldy building and go, oh, it's mouldy and I'm going to score it five out of five for bad. And someone else who lives in a mouldy building walks in and probably goes, eh, it doesn't smell too bad, I'll give it a one. So that's mm-hmm. the sort of thing that's qualitative. It's how people experience it. What we do in, in the real hard end of science uh, is what's called quantitative. That is you measure the quantity and you can put it in a scale. And uh, that's that's where I focus my doctorate area and where we continue to focus a lot of research is is what's called quantitating the cleanliness. And that's what you can't tell by looking because a lot of the things you're looking for are below visible, visible sight. So, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I have a microbiology background. I'm a member of the Australian Society of Microbiology. And, uh, you know, microbiology is fantastic. It's a very quantitative science when it's done well, but the moment you have to measure micro in the field, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of money. There's a lot of preparation. Um, It costs a lot. And then you have to wait three, four, five days, depending on your systems, up to two weeks to get the answers. Well, if you're monitoring a cleaning site, you don't have that time. You you need to go in and get it and be able to say it's clean. And, uh, and if you can't, well, it's not going to be able to be working for, for everybody. So what I focused on in my PhD were two basic systems. One used fluorescent markers. Um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Philip Carling is a good friend and colleague of mine from Boston. He's now retired. He invented a system called uh, DAZO, D-A-Z-O, published it widely, where he put little fluorescent marker dots around hospitals <clears throat> and um, he went round and put them on and when they dried it had a bit of a glue in it when it your water soluble glue when it dried you couldn't really see them <clears throat> and what he found was 
If the cleaner's using a wet cloth or moistened cloth with the detergent cleaned over it, he washed them away. And what he found was that he could put them randomly through a hospital and he could tell by going, he'd put them around one day and he'd go around the next after the cleaners had been through and he'd count how many had been removed. And that gave him a quantitative number on how much cleaning, surface cleaning had actually been done. So cleaners who went through and said, yeah, I've done this room, but they actually didn't wipe down a single surface. Well, if he put five dots in that room, there were still five dots there afterwards. Likewise, if they used dry microfiber, which wasn't part of his system in his hospital, Philip, Dr. Carling is a, an infectious diseases doctor, um, and uh, they didn't want dry microfiber, they wanted a, a moistened system. So if he found they were using dry microfiber, he could say, well, you know, you, you, you didn't clean the room. The room is not clean. Now, <clears throat> the trouble I had with that fluorescent marker system is it's really good for measuring whether you've got cleanliness in terms of has the cleaning process been done, but it doesn't tell you is the surface really clean. So if I went into that room and dip the rag into the toilet bowl and then used the toilet water to clean the surfaces, I don't think any of us would regard those surfaces having been cleaned, but all the dots would have been removed. Well, so, and, and the reason would be is because mm -hmm. microfiber and water can remove 99% of what is there, uh, depending sure. on whose study. So, you know, that you removed the visible marker isn't quantifying the healthiness or the safety of the of the surface is what you're saying well what we found was and this is i, I started looking at uh, dr carling's um, materials <clears throat> and uh, which are now commercially available in the u.s <clears throat> so what i found was that is what's called a process measure so the fluorescent markers are really good for measuring the process not the outcome has the process been conducted, yes or no? And it's really quantitative, and there's good data on them. And there's a few of them around. There's a few different systems around by different commercial organisations. And then I moved on to looking at particularly ATP measurements. So I think your, your, your listeners are used to hearing about ATP, aren't they? Oh, we use it extensively. That's what we write in our, all of our protocols. So I'm glad that you're mentioning it. Yeah, perfect. Well, my PhD largely looked around um, the main commercial variant systems that are available in the market, and I, I did both a bunch of laboratory-type experiments using microbiology and chemistry uh, to, to basically work out how good or not so good they are. And we looked at brands like Hygiena, 3M, Kickerman, Charm, so we didn't do everybody in the field, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on those I didn't mention, but they're the main ones I looked at. And we compared them, <clears throat> and we did a lot of comparison work. And a lot of my work has actually been published in, uh, in journals in the US, uh, medical journals, things like uh, Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, uh, the American Journal of Infection Control. Uh, I've published also in the Journal of Hospital Infection and a couple of other local journals in Australia. So it's all out there publicly. And what we found was that ATP is a really good uh, uh, indicator for general cleaning where there's human soils, that is, lots of cells. The, the good thing about ATP is it's pretty good with bacteria, um, it's pretty good with fungus, a little bit harder with fungus. Struggles with spores. Um, the one difficulty it is, it doesn't work with viruses. But let me come back to viruses in a minute, Dave, because that's a big issue for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. The ATP system will not detect a virus. But I want to talk to you about, and your listeners, about how this virus is working, because a lot of the a lot of the studies on this virus are very young. I mean, we've only been dealing with this thing for, what, 14 weeks? 14 weeks ago, it came to the uh, shores in Australia and, and the US, possibly a little bit earlier. Uh, there was a report yesterday that uh, someone in, um, I can't remember whether it was France or Italy, turned up 
on a retrospective analysis to have the virus early on. And uh, um, but we didn't we didn't know enough to identify it back then. So yeah. as <laughs> as we've learned to identify it, we'll we'll find maybe the origin origin and the dates of all of that is. Uh, well, kind of mute at this point. We have it. It's here. You know, I was, we have a, a study that we were watching and, and as you're starting to talk about virus, it's the size of the virus and, and how hard it is to, to grab hold of. And uh, um, I think this is interesting. Another Aussie actually, uh, he termed this as a raisin bun. He said the raisin bun holds raisins and the raisins are the virus and the bacteria is the bun. Uh, is that a good analogy? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I knew that I was going to say this when you came on today. I'm like, okay, I got, I, I've got to because it was an interesting concept. But this is somewhat the way we've got to talk with people because they don't understand that you know. First of all, uh, this virus is not a, a, a living organism. It's not a bacteria that lives on its own. It has to be encapsulated in something else to move around. So when we're talking about uh, our cleaning processes and our filters and all this, it's not the virus we're after. It's where the virus, well, is housed or absorbed into. <clears throat> so let's talk to that for a minute because what I was going to say about it, because it's young, a lot of the studies that are being done and published right now were, were done you know, 10, 12 weeks ago sort of thing, as soon as they got the virus. And they're, they're studies on pure virus. But this virus has some very unusual characteristics about it. Um, there was an excellent study published just last month in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Van Doral Marlin. And um, don't, don't ask me to spell that, but I can see his name on my screen in front of me. <laughs> and, um, um, it was an excellent study looking at how long the virus survives on different surfaces, and it compared SARS number one versus this SARS number two, the COVID-19. <clears throat> the most interesting part of this for me was how long the, the virus survives as neat virus on something like cardboard. So let's say a business card or a delivery package or a box, okay, and SARS one generally died out pretty quickly. SARS-2 lived for a day. Now, for a virus in the open, that's a long time. Now, there are some viruses. Well, let me go back to your 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 bun with the uh, with the raisins in it. <laughs> <laughs> and and let me let me perhaps give you a different scale. Okay. So imagine you've got a pumpkin. Uh -oh. Okay. Uh -oh. pumpkin. Okay. Let's, now we got a pumpkin. Okay. I got to sit up for this one now. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can you can use a basketball. If you can't lift a pumpkin, you can use a basketball. Uh, okay. okay. It's the same basically size. And then you get a, a needle, like a needle that you sew with, a really fine needle. Okay. The very pointy end of that needle is the size of the virus compared to the basketball. In fact, it's still too big. <laughs> I knew you were so, going to say something like that. <laughs> but look, um, uh, and the reason why we need to say that is, so imagine the basketball. Okay, how many, if the needle point was a measurement, how many needle points would fit in that basketball internally? Because when we talk about viruses, that's what we're talking about. Billions of particles, billions upon billions. And this is why they become so easily airborne. And look, you've got to remember the virus is trying to survive. Its whole goal in life is to find someone else to infect. Yeah, that's, that's its that's, And it's very good at doing that. <laughs> Turns out to be terrific. So let me talk about another one. A quite different from state. A lot of us will look at it. It looks like sort of a flour. Turns out it's not. So when you cough and sneeze and splutter, when you get the flu on day zero, so you get the flu on day zero. So here's day zero. I've managed to inhale the virus. Someone else has coughed nearby. I inhale the virus. It gets into my lungs. <clears throat> Usually within 
the first 12 hours, the virus has jumped onto my cells and started to reproduce itself. And within 48 hours, usually, I'm starting to cough and sneeze and splutter. And I'm, and as I'm doing that, I'm releasing huge numbers of virus particles. Because mm-hmm. the virus gets out ahead of the first signs of the infection. But it happens within 48 hours. And generally, by the third day, I'm as rotten as could be and curled up in bed with a, you know, a bottle of lemon juice and, and, uh, and a thermometer, you know, and uh, feeling terrible for a week. And flu virus does kill literally millions of people every year across the globe. I mean, it, it yes. can be a terrible virus for some people. Yes. And it's, it's undiscriminating. It doesn't tend to pick age groups. It's, you know, every year with a new flu variant, you see different age groups. You think, oh, gee, you wouldn't have thought those people would be affected, but they are. With this virus, it's, it's, it's coming out both ends. So first thing to say is half of all the people who get this virus, it turns out in their poo. And so one of the things that we've been talking about in, in webinars is that means that public restrooms cleaning is far more critical with this virus than anything you've ever done with the influenza virus because it rarely becomes gastric. So this is this is uh, what you're saying, Greg. This this is more like our norovirus uh, issues that we fight because of the size and and the mode of transportation. It has similarities in in spread. So so straight away that opens in a public health sense. That opens up a whole different way of looking at things in terms of contact surfaces because we know all of us that are involved in cleaning know the bathroom cleaning is a challenge because despite most people being told to wash their hands, many don't. And look, as I say in talks, when you go and have to sit down and do your business on the toilet, uh, what's after you've finished and all the wiping is done, what do you do? Oh, yeah, you probably pull up your pants or you might flush first, but you pull up your pants and you open the stall door and then you go out and wash. Well, before you've even got out to wash your hands, you've touched the flush, you've touched the stall door, you've touched your pants, your belt, whatever else, you might have had a bag with you, you picked up the bag. The bugs that were on your hands are now on all of those surfaces. Now, let's assume you wash them off. Well, the trouble is if you walk out the restroom door and the last person hadn't even bothered to wash their hands, the germs that were on their hands are now on the restroom door. And we know from studies we've published that particularly if you've got bugs that were in a biofilm, so bacteria in a biofilm, I'll come back to that, those bacteria are on your hands for up to 19 subsequent touches. So the next 19 <laughs> things you touch, your poo bacteria are joining, joining with your hands and going everywhere, okay? So if you've got COVID-19 and you're asymptomatic or you're recovering it and, you know, you're still excreting this virus, 50% of people have got it in their poo. But let's go back to the other end, Dave. Let's, let's not talk about poo all day. Let's talk okay, about... So, um, so I kind of want to ask something here because I, I teach this in class all the time <clears throat> that after the service technicians get through servicing the restroom, I ask the class, what is the most infected item still in the restroom? And, you know, we'll always talk about all of the touch points. And I say, you know, here's the thing. In all of my experience, and I'm not on the clinical side like you are, I'm on the practical side of, of the technician, frontline technician. It's because of what we do and what we don't do properly. And it's always, every time I've done an ATP testing, after the service has been done, it's that inside toilet stall doorknob to the point that you just made. Because here's the thing, we just don't service it. We service everything else, but we open that door, we never service that. So, you know... When you use the ATP and you do the measuring, then you find these things out. Bit of a question. Of course, if you'd have asked me, and let's say we have two cleaners and we've got one's really good and one's really hopeless, yeah, I would have gone to the stall door as well. But even with a really good one, I'd love to know what the ATP readings are on the cleaner themselves, on their, their waterproof clothing, things like their gloves. Oh, well, the, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. face mask. You know, that's the point we made in a school seminar just last week. I'm going to do another one this week is, 
you know, <clears throat> um, unlike norovirus, so norovirus will survive on those surfaces for literally years. I mean, it's a very, very well-structured, very small virus. It will last for years. This COVID-19 virus won't last that long. A couple of days. Um, if it's a perfect environment, you might last in a couple of weeks. So one of the yeah, it, it's very it's it's very on. fragile compared yeah. to the norovirus, which is very Absolutely. viral and, and and very tenacious. Absolutely, um, <clears throat> but you know it, it, it's actually the cleanest gloves, and that's why with healthcare workers, one of the similarities COVID nineteen shares with Ebola is the number of healthcare workers that are catching it. Right, and we know with Ebola. A third of the healthcare workers that got the virus got it from taking off their personal protective equipment badly. When they were what's called doffing, taking off their PPE, yep. their hands ended up touching the outside of a contaminated surface. And all they need to do is rub their eye or itch their nose or, or, or cough and have some food. We know that people touch their faces 20 to 40 times an hour. It's something we do naturally. I mean, there was that poor, poor lady that was making that public health announcement a couple of weeks ago where she said, you're not allowed to touch your face. And then, and she and then we watched her do it. Turn the page. You know, everyone goes, hold the phone. You know, what's going on there? Uh, if I can inter inter interrupt you on your you thought go. there a minute, we have a listener that has asked a question, and I, I want to make sure that we take care of our listeners this afternoon. We are live here on Absolutely. Podbean Live. And um, this, uh, I believe, a lady, I'm not sure exactly, but it says, what do you is your opinion as the cause and the origin of this virus? Oh, well, <laughs> so uh, do I want to get into politics, Dave? Well, let me tell you about the papers I've read. The papers I've read, these are technical papers, say it's clearly a bat virus. And there seems little little doubt about that in terms of the the uh, viral genetics. Um, whether it came from um, the wet markets in Wuhan or whether it came from a laboratory, I think the key thing at this stage is it, it looks like it's come from China. Now, um, I think I'd rather you know we I'd rather not get into the politics of I, who did what where. But it's I'm just I'm just hey I'm just being a good host and making sure that my <laughs> listeners the question was asked and you know like you said we don't want to get into the politics too far but it and and you know I think the thing is is where it came from is important don't want to make say it isn't but it's not the issue the issue is now what do we do and I think what we're explaining oh, here. This afternoon is, you know, and, and this goes back to the gentleman just before we got on the line this afternoon, Greg, you know, he was, he was saying, I, I don't know what to tell my people. We need more information because we're getting a lot of conflicting information about this. And I think what you're saying this afternoon is, is very close to maybe exactly what I've been saying is, you know, this outward appearance of going around and fogging and spraying and covering everything in God's green earth, including God's green earth, with disinfectants, is it doing what we think it's doing? Total waste of time. But let me come back to that in a minute, and I'll tell you why it's a total waste of time. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, let's talk about what happens at the upper end of our body, so out of our mouth. In our mouth, this virus grabs hold of uh, uh, what's called protein receptors. That's how it gets into the cell. And, of course, technically the virus is only alive inside a cell. That's where it reproduces. When it's out in the environment, it's technically not alive. Let me just backtrack one little moment. This is going to be a technically important point. Um, okay. Bat viruses are really important. There are a lot of bat viruses in the US. There are a lot of bat viruses in Australia. Um, Ebola was a bat virus or is a bat virus. And uh, we've got a couple down under. Um, and of course, you worry about rabies with bats mm -hmm. in the US. So bat viruses are significant because bats poop in a particular way. And um, this virus gets into now our human cells around our mouth and our nose 
also in our eyes, believe it or not, Dave. There are, there are these receptors are in your uh, uh, ocular spaces. So your eye, around your eyeballs, you've got these spaces, which is why if you're, you know, in a really difficult environment, you should definitely have a face mask on. Um, um, believe it or not, your ear is connected to your nose and mouth, so it's unlikely to be a, a you know, a source of infection, but, you know, it's technically possible. So once it gets into your mouth and it infects your cells, it starts producing in cells. But when it's in the cell, it's, it's doing stuff in the cell and it's turning the machinery in the cell to make it itself, and we could waste your listeners' time with a whole pile of virology, which I won't. Here's the big thing. When it gets out of the cell, it's in like little bubbles called vesicles. And in that little bubble are billions of viral particles. And as it comes through the cell, so imagine a human cell is like, um, <clears throat> gee, now I'm, now I'm looking for your raisin and bun illustration, Dave. So... <laughs> So imagine, imagine it's like a jelly with uh, with skittles in it, with little smarties in it. Okay, so little chocolate coated balls. Okay, and they're migrating towards the surface of the jelly, and they get to the surface, and they have to pop out. So as they pop out, they they squeeze out through the surface of the cell, and Billions of particles are released, but they're released usually inside the mouth of the air. Now, those viruses are, 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 are going to be in a mixture of saliva and other materials, oral, oral particulates, bits of food, or if you've got a snotty nose, a you know, runny nose, there's nasal uh, aspirates as well. But sometimes also it's in whole cells. So the whole cell containing the vesicle still inside the cell gets spat out because your mouth regenerates faster than just about any other part of your body. It heals incredibly quickly. So you'll know that if you, you know, brush your teeth a bit too vigorously and you, you've got a bit of periodontal disease. By the way, one of the other things I do for, uh, for want of my sins is that I sit on the Australian... Dental Association's National Infection Control Committee representing the Australian Dental Industry Association. So um, we do a bit of this and we're writing about this at the moment because the dental industry has been severely affected by this COVID-19 because saliva risks are very real. But the virus comes out, if you will. Some of it's out there as just raw virus and some of it's um, inside these vesicles, inside cells. Now, as long as that cell remains intact and the vesicle remains intact inside the cell, the virus is alive. So when you do disinfectant testing, you get the raw virus and you test it against the disinfectant. I know that. I've done it myself with some of our technology. That's the way everyone does it. But that's not how the virus turns up in the real world. In the real world, the virus turns up with other bits of stuff around it, inside of biofilms, inside of nasal aspirates or oral aspirates, um, and sometimes still inside intact cells inside a vesicle. Now, that disinfectant testing is not being done. So when people come through with these fogging machines and go, it's all right, it's 100% natural, and it's 100% effective, we had one of these claimed like this in Australia last week, the uh, regulators already out after them and I'm sure they'll shut them down. Just a bogus claim, but they were claiming a fogging thing. Look, why don't you all just go and have a cup of tea or a bit of a coffee and just wait for it to be over because you won't be able to get to work until that's out of the way and then you can get in and do the cleaning because until they've gone through and done all that stuff and wasted all the money, um, the virus is still there. And it's still going to be quite happy. And it's going to live inside these biofilms and cells. And none of those things are going to work. Hence, um, cruise ships. If you look at how they cleaned cruise ships, I mean, there's lots of fogging goes on on cruise ships. Yet those cruise ships were like floating, floating laboratories full of people spreading the virus. I mean, there are common air conditioning systems between wardrooms. Um, there are common areas and uh, just, you know, using a fogging disinfectant, 
is not going to work. And in one of the cruise ships, Dave, your, your, your listeners may know this, but in one of the cruise ships in which there were a bunch of Australians, actually, um, including some who died, um, they recovered live virus from a, a, ward, a stateroom or a wardroom, whatever, the, the room on the boat. Um, after the patient had left, they recovered it 18 days later. 18 days. Now, that's a near-perfect environment, but you've got to remember, too, that room would have been someone coughing and spluttering. and So the virus is not there just as pure virus. It's inside and kept moistened inside of, of all these different materials. And that's, well, yeah. that's one of the things this virus does. It survives. Well, and what we have also known as dust is one of the most vicious carriers of these pathogens, not just COVID, but other viruses as well because dust is just laden with all kinds of, well, food and places for things to survive. And then that multiplies and moves around. And this is how it goes from, uh, well, you know, one place to another That's very, very rapidly. Absolutely. And look, what happens in that case? And I know my good friend, uh, Dr. Richard Shaughnessy and Professor uh, Gordon Petia uh, at uh, Yale, they're going to be doing work on resuspension. Because, you know, the, the, the particles come out moist out of your mouth and nose, but they dry out. Okay, right. so if they're not cleaned off, what happens? They get resuspended. And, of course, we're also shedding 40 billion skin cells a day, each of us. And those skin cells are part of the particulate dust that surrounds us. And, uh, oh, absolutely. Even in our class, we, we found a study that said that every hour – we are moving, shedding, and uh, um, putting into the environment 37 million of these skin cells and uh, other items every hour. And then when you get a yeah. lot of us together, and I'm thinking, you know, what's this, uh, what's this magic six-foot uh, ring of, in, you know, of, of social distancing actually going to do? Well, if this be all of the case, if everything what you're saying is the case, how really effective is this six-foot distancing whenever I'm in a restaurant? <laughs> well, it, 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 look, it, it, that's a good question. It's actually pretty it, – it's, it's based on pretty reasonable science. We know that people who – unless you're going to sneeze, if you sneeze, you could find that 18 feet isn't – you know, and, and I've got a, an uncle who used to sneeze like he was a cannon going off. <laughs> So, well, you know, you know, I've heard it's 110 miles an hour. So if it's unprotected oh, sneeze, you know, absolutely. hey, wait a minute. And, and, and you want to hope that he wasn't eating carrots at the time because, you know, you could be knocked unconscious with a bit of carrot that came flying. <laughs> <out there. laughs> you know what? I, I want to I take just a short break here, uh, uh, Greg, because I've got to do a little uh, uh, business here. And sure. then I'm going to get back to this conversation Folks, you are listening to uh, Dr. Greg and I talk about COVID and some of the particulars. It's a very interesting discussion this afternoon. We are sponsored by Gym Supply. They are a supplier of cleaning supplies. They've been improving lives with these cleaning supplies since 1930. So we've been doing it for a while. We are so happy to be you know, sponsored and powered by them and give the, us the ability to have these conversations. If you're needing some supplies, well, you know, the distribution channels everywhere around the world are being stretched. Um, we get this call all the time about, can we do this? Can we do that? Well, uh, you know, just because we're a major supplier of these supplies doesn't mean we're not challenged like everybody else. We are the Academy of Cleaning Excellence, where we provide education and certification for the cleaning industry. We always talk about things that are healthy, positive, and proactive. Now, I'm not sure about how healthy our conversation is this afternoon because I don't know if you've been listening for the last 30 minutes to Dr. Greg here, you know, you may be saying it's not safe to go outside. <laughs> is it safe back? to go outside? Yeah, we back. Yeah, is it safe to go outside, Doctor Greg? Oh, <laughs> or or or, or oh, is the, or or is the outside the best place? Because you know we are all hearing these th stories like, <clears throat> well, the sunlight will kill it. Well, look, there's there's a, a lot of truth in that. Uh, the virus spread spread very quickly, particularly in cities like New York, because 
it's cold. In winter, it's cold. Everyone is, you know, stuck in buses and and uh, tramways. I mean, that's how influenza works every year. The flu virus moves around in winter. It's a winter virus because we're usually closer together and it can, you know, be exhaled by one person and inhaled by another person more easily. And so um, the distancing issues, as I said before we went to break, are, are pretty state standard. Look, if you're outside and you're in the fresh air, no, there's no chance of catching the virus. It, it's not like it's going to be suspended on a particle in the air and stay there for days. Um, the, the real risk is someone who walks past and as you walk past, they cough and you inhale their cough. That That's not a good outcome. Um, so so, just, so uh, you're saying that here on my beach in, in on Florida where we like to go, because we're in Florida this afternoon, uh, oh. if I go out to the beach and I'm walking along the beach and there's nobody there, I don't need to be wearing a mask. No. No, and, and now and when look, somebody you know, gets ready to pass me or something because they could cough on me, it might be the prudent thing to do. Sure, sure. Look, it, it, or you could just step a little bit to the side and make sure you you know you maintain your six foot distance. Or just just run out into the ocean and get away from them altogether, and you have no problem, right? <laughs> well, if you want one of those face shields, you know the ones that the visor that comes down, you could have it up while you're walking along and then pull it down as they go past. <laughs> I mean, it probably wouldn't be very friendly. They'd be like, who is this guy? No, but, yeah, what, but what I mean, rude, uh, what a rude person. Yeah, well, there is some of this. It is, I mean, you know, I hate to be comical about it, but in, in some cases, this is, you know, we see this, you know, and my wife and I've talked about this numerous times. You know, there you're, there's one person in the car and they're wearing a mask and they look at me because I'm not wearing a mask. And I actually, actually had somebody shake their finger at me and point to their mask. And I'm thinking, you're in your car. I'm in my car. The windows are up. And you're yeah. we're in cars. I mean, some of this is just getting, well. Well, and, and look, Dave, one of the real issues for people is a lot of people have died. I mean, there has been a huge uh, oh, yeah. uh, number of people globally and in the U.S. and in Australia who have died. And, you know, families are affected and people are affected. And, and look, fear is a very powerful motivator for people. Um, you know, social distancing when you're shopping is an unusual new thing that happens. I mean, you know, we've got sh shopping malls and, you know, you're meant to keep your six-foot distance and they've got lines now painted on the, you know, this is this way and you go that way, that way sort of thing, you know. So you've got to walk through the whole mall and when you come to pay at the cash register there's x's on the ground so you maintain your six feet from the person in front uh, look this this sort of stuff actually does work with this virus there's no doubt there is there's reasonable evidence for that sort of thing but we also need to be aware and this is where your 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 service and the 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 academy of cleaning excellence is is absolutely right this virus survives on surfaces so we've got to do the cleaning and let me work back around there because i want to come back to atp See, one of the things with ATP is it will detect bacteria, and I've been very happy to prove that, and it will detect human cells, and that's very important, and other cells. So with this virus, because it's coming out of humans, and humans give off cells all the time, mm -hmm. this virus, um, now I've not been able to prove this yet because we're still working with surrogates, but this virus is generally going to be present in and around other cellular materials and that's where ATP has a really unique uh, indicator opportunity um, the ATP will be very good at indicating if you've got human cellular soils present it's very good one, one of the things that the uh, AT people will not want to tell you, but I can tell you, having done this myself countless times, is, is if you want to do a positive control on your ATP meter, you can actually swab your own nose, which sounds terrible. You, you know, you, you see yourself coming at that with that cotton bud and you're thinking, oh, my God, that's going up my nose. You can put it in your mouth if you want. and um, But your nose is particularly good. And you will tend to read at the maximum end of the scale if you've swabbed properly. And uh, that's because there's all sorts of cells up there, Dave. So ATP as an indicator for the sort of soils that will be present when the virus is present is actually a pretty good indicator. It's a bit like measuring E. coli in uh, uh, swimming uh, water. 
So if you want to see whether um, you've got a clean swimming pool, you go measuring for chlorine. But if you want to see what the river's like or the creek's like or even the beach, you go and you do some microbiology and try and grow a bug called E. coli. E. coli is a bug that is in everyone. It's 100% present in human poo. So if you find E. coli, it's a great indicator that there's some sort of fecal contamination, poo contamination in the water. The important thing to note is it doesn't tell you whether norovirus is there because E. coli does not carry norovirus. Um, but it will tell you that there's been fecal material present. And so if you find the fecal material present, you go and E. coli is the indicator. You say, well, that surface is not clean. I put it to you with ATP and the work that the ACE are doing with ATP is just as valid in this context. If you're still measuring ATP and you're still getting positive outcomes from your ATP device, um, and I'll come back to what's a positive versus a negative outcome in a minute in quantitative terms. If you're getting a measurement that's reading ATP positive, you've still got, you've got physical soil on that surface. And that's really important to people to know because it gives your listeners who are using ATP a quantitative mechanism to indicate an unclean surface. And that's really important in the context of COVID-19, really important. And, uh, you know, perhaps even life-saving if you've got it right. Now, the one thing I would say too about ATP is it measures on a scale, as you've probably been through this, called relative light units. And we could do a whole talk on this one day, Dave, if your listeners were interested. Um, but relative light units means relative light units. So I'd like my weight scale to be relative uh, pounds, okay? So I'd like to think that I had a, an ideal weight of around uh, relative 180 pounds, Okay, and I'm fit and healthy. Um, and, and, and if I have too much cake at Christmas and then indulge in too many fatty foods and I put on another 20 pounds, I want to use a different scale that's got a different version of relative pounds so that I still score 200 or 180 relative pounds. Okay? And every scale can be different. Now, that's the problem we have with ATP. We've got a scale that's a relative scale and it's it's not a universal scale. So how it measures on a hygiene unit versus a 3M unit versus a charm unit versus any other unit, these are not uniform scales. They're relative. What's right. more, at the lower end of the scale, you get to a phenomenon, I'm going to use some big terms, uh, again, apologies for that, where you've got what's called the lower limit of quantitation and the lower limit of detection. Now, I'll start with the second one. The lower limit of detection is how, how little ATP can be present and you still get a positive reading. And let's, I'll use, um, I'll use the, the Hygiena one. Now, uh, and I'll compare it to 3M. When I did the lower limited detection units, I found that the Hygiena unit read about 10 times lower than 3M. But there's so little ATP there, it almost doesn't matter. But then when I did what was the lower limit of quantitation, that is to say, how reliable is that? So then what I did was I got pure ATP and I got exactly the right amount and I quantitated it using a very precise uh, tool called a, uh, a chromatography tool, HPLC, so that we knew exactly what was there. And what we found was that the less ATP you had, the less reliable unit. So even with a hygiene unit, once you get below about 10 RLUs, really it's not very reliable. So the practical zero for a, a hygiene unit was less than 10. At less than 10, okay, you might detect a bit, but it's zero. When well, it did read zero, it actually meant zero. But you could detect a little bit from zero to 10, but it was unreliable. 
And I think the thing is, what we teach in class all the time is don't get caught up in that number being such the issue and exactly what I'm I'm, I'm seeing in the field. We teach more from if we start at a level of 5,000 and we can get to a single digit by the practice that we're using, then this quantifies the effectiveness of our process. If I start at 5,000 and I can only get to 1,000, then maybe there's something in my process I can do to enhance my ability. And so I think what I like to do is, is don't get caught up in the numbers as much. Just get, just, just change my process to validate I've done the very best I can. Would this be inaccurate? Well, absolutely. In fact, I'll give you a little tip, and this is something we've published. We have an algorithm out there that's available on public access as a technical article. Um, but uh, one of the little tests you can do is you can get, um, depending which brand you're using. Uh, I you use the Hygiena. Uh, okay, so you can get a, uh, if you get the Hygiena, you can um, you can get a little wipe. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's uh, like a, a, a cleaning wipe, not a disinfectant wipe, a cleaning wipe. And um, you can, so if you've tested the surface before you clean, and let's say it was at 5,000, and then you, then you test it again, um, you test it again um, after you've cleaned it, and it's, say, 890. What you can do is you can actually then get your little uh, wipe, and if you use it what's called aseptically, there's a bit of technique to this. We've got a video on our website about it. Um, and you clean it aseptically, and then you test that little spot again. If you've cleaned it, aseptically, what we found, particularly with hygiene, is you would often find you would get to less than 10. You'd be down at zeros, ones, and twos. So right. that, what that told you is, tells you is, well, you know you've done a huge improvement to get from, you know, 5,000 down to 800-something, but it still says there's some opportunity to do better. Correct. And, and that, that's absolutely right. And all I was going to say about the 3M unit is 3M unit, another great unit, reliable. What we found was... Uh, when I when I did my PhD, which is a few years ago, and I know they keep improving these things, um, but what we found was that again, the the lower limit of detection for the 3M unit was about 30 RLUs. Anything below 30 was meaningless. But we found that the lower limit of quantitation reliably probably sat at around 50 to 80 RLUs, uh, and there was a bit of variance there. And um, um, but you know once you got once you got above you know particularly once you got above seventy or eighty RLUs it was pretty reliable as a unit and again so if you and it reads higher so it it'll read and let's say you start out with a reading of, of uh, you know fifty eight thousand and then you get it down to you know twelve hundred you've still made a massive improvement you do the little and I think that test there, that's the whole reason we want to use and you're, you're there. Well, you're right, Greg. This is the whole reason that we want to do the field testing. Now, I mean, we, we have been talking for, gosh, 50-plus minutes here. I didn't realize the time was going by so fast. I do want to ask before we leave and before we let you go, I know you're getting your morning started, and, hey, it's uh, going to be after 5 o'clock here pretty quick. <laughs> what, what, what do you, from your clinical viewpoint that you've explained this afternoon, what is the future for the cleaning industry as you see it? Oh, I see only upside for the cleaning industry. I think the sort of thing we're talking about with ATP measurement and other measurements are going to be the way of the future, Dave. Um, as you probably know, I'm, I'm on the executive committee of the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, which uh, is a little uh, not-for-profit group that looks at cleaning research. It's got some eminent scientists in it. And... Um, We've been working now for at least a decade on trying to improve this, and it always takes the science a little bit longer to get it ready for commercial, and some of the early adopters have struggled because, you know, some of the science is a little bit still under under development, but I think we're getting rapidly to the point of acceptance of this sort of approach, the, the ACE approach, which is to measure, and uh, I absolutely endorse ACE all your listeners and, and the approach they're taking on on measuring cleaning you, you know the science has to guide the process science has to guide the cleaning industry and that's the future and 
that will actually, believe it or not, result in, in better, um, better uh, profit margins for cleaners. Because one of the things that happens is if you're, you're measuring it and you find that you've got to go back, you, you, you're going to be able to improve things. That's, it's going to cost more, but it means your customers also will be measuring. And you know, it's when the I, customers start measuring, that's when it gets really interesting. Uh, I was doing one of my classes here about uh, two weeks ago, and one of my students at the end of a seven-hour remote learning class had only one statement to say, um, and I thought it was interesting and very pointed. He said, the time for playing janitor is over. Now, you know, I... I I love the word janitor. I understand the word janitor, but I get his point. You know, there's a lot of people in our, in in our industry, uh, in the globe, on the globe that play at the game of cleaning. And I think those days are over. I think you're absolutely right. So let me finish with one anecdote, a paper, which was published by a a mate of mine um, in 2018. It was published in the U S they tracked a bug, a terrible bug. Uh, it was a, a bug that kills people called VRE. Oh, yeah. And they tracked this bug around an intensive care unit. And they tracked the patients as well. And they were doing swabbing of the patients. Uh, they swabbed the patients when they came in and every week and then when they left. And they were able to prove that this bug moved in and out of surfaces in biofilms sat on surfaces for a while and someone would come along and touch it and then it would end up in a third patient. And they've tracked this uh, uh, phenomena. Now, you couldn't do that 20 years ago, but with modern genetics, they could absolutely prove that this bug spread. Now, for all of us in the cleaning sector doing what we're doing, that says the cleaning was negligent. They didn't do Mm -hmm. it. Right. It was on the surface because it survived on the surface because they weren't cleaning. Now, what do you think is going to happen when the lawyers find out about that stuff? That they can prove in a court of law that the cleaning had failed. Wow. The impact is astronomical it, it, on our sector. What's been very interesting in talking with you this afternoon, you know, and, and very encouraging, by the way, is you did not say for the whole afternoon, Greg, disinfect 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 you said cleaning all the time and this is one of the things that i continue to tell people forget the disinfecting because you're not doing the cleaning if you don't do the cleaning disinfecting isn't even in the game if we don't clean right and i've found in all of my experience in the 45 years i've been doing this and you can hear at the end of this afternoon tell me if you think i'm uh, full of hot water or whatever you know, I've, I've said for years, I don't care what chemical that you use, as long as you put it on the surface, agitate it, rinse, and use a squeegee on, an, on a flat, smooth surface, that's the best you can do. And you'll have better surfaces. And if we could just do more of that, we would be much better off. Oh, Absolutely. Now, I find it interesting. I find it interesting how we are so ingrained in this chemical when COVID, the virus that we're talking about today, basic soap, water, and rinse takes care of it. Well, we could have a whole other debate about that, Dave, as to how that works, because of course. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of expected that. I think we haven't had a chance to get into cleaning. Like, there's, 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 here's here's a cool set of numbers. There are nine variables in the simple action of a cleaning wipe. Okay, so let's leave it at that. And there are nine variables in the simple description of a neutral detergent. (laughs) Okay, so I think that that I I believe that, you know, if people have, uh, I I know we've had a couple of listeners come on live this afternoon. We were so involved in our conversation that uh, uh, nobody even asked to come on live. They just wanted to listen. I think if you're listening to this in a recording, you're probably going, oh, my gosh, how much more have we got to learn? Um, you know, you're going to be on Thursday, I think, with the EPA. Um, I'm not That's sure fair. what the time of that, that webinar is, but uh, I know that will be some good information there. 
you know, it's an open invitation. Anytime that you would like to join us and be on Podbean Live with us, uh, you now know how the program works. That's been my absolute pleasure, I've got to say, and uh, I've been delighted to take part, Dave, and I thank you and your listeners for their patience, and I wish them uh, every blessing as they go into summer to, uh, to keep safe and uh, keep well. So uh, how can they get hold of you if they would like to? Um, look, um, our, uh, our website is probably the best way, which is simply www.whitley.com.au. I'm sure you'll be able to put a link up and they can contact me through there. That's the easiest way. Good enough. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time uh, this morning for you, this evening for us. Thank you. Have a good week. Stay safe out there, folks. If you've been listening to us, you know that we talk every time that we have a broadcast. Healthy, positive, and proactive. Make sure that whatever you do between now and then, you keep those words in mind. We'll be back with you tomorrow. We have another speaker that's going to be on. Uh, we also have a gentleman from England going to join us on Thursday. But tomorrow, uh, we've got a gentleman out of, I think it's Steve Hansen out of Michigan. He's going to talk about home care cleaning and the commercial cleaning and all the, well, the nuances between the two. We've got a great week lined up for you, and we'll be talking more about it next week, too. So join us here on Podbean Live. It's been a pleasure. Greg, thanks for being on. Dave, thanks you, and wish your listeners all their best. Bye for now. Bye, folks.